Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number three, and I'm thrilled to have as today's guest, Paul Dunk. Paul's a pastor and church planter in Kitchener, Ontario, and in this episode, we seek to discuss God's grace in preaching, in administering, and in church planting. We also talk about the importance and the significance of writing and blogging about the gospel in this social media age. I think you'll find this conversation both fun and encouraging as two aspiring writers and grace addicts talk theology, scholasticism, and the gospel. This episode is sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB is the optimal blend of accuracy and readability, providing pastors with a translation that they can trust and lay people with a Bible that they can read for themselves. Find out more at csbible.com. Now for Paul Dunk. Listen and enjoy. So I'm basically nobody, and uh, I just talk about that Jesus guy. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, Susan and I have been married for uh, 20 years uh, next month. Congratulations. And, uh, I mean, we got three kids, and um, they're fantastic. So I'm a church planter, and um, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later, I guess. But um, just for quick intro, uh, planted KW Redeemer on Easter Sunday of 2015. So a little baby church, about a year old. And um, so I do a lot of blogging and, uh, and uh, connect with folks that way and encourage the church and the gospel and uh, just actively involved in the city here and um, just love, love the city that we live in. We live in Kitchener, Waterloo, uh, which is in the southernmost tip of, uh, of Ontario, southernmost tip of Canada, almost, and um, city of about 300,000 and um so coaching baseball here starting next week, just connecting with some families in the city and, and uh, rubbing shoulders and just uh, looking for opportunities to love, love the city and share the gospel. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw that you've just celebrated your one year anniversary at KW and that's uh, congratulations first. Thank you. I know oh, it yeah. could be a, a trying time going through planning a church. Oh, um, it's like having a little it's like having a little one-year-old baby. Brad. <laughs> There's just so much joy and so much crap everywhere. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. I don't know what that means yet, but I'm sure yeah. I'll experience it soon. <laughs> oh, you will. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Now, but on that, I would like to ask you sort of describe, 
besides just a lot of joy and crap everywhere, kind of <laughs> describe the process of planting sure. a church and kind of what led you to planting KW Redeemer. Sure. That's a great question. Um, well, Susan and I had a huge, um, if I was gospel awakening in 2011, if I was to use, borrow a term from Jared Wilson, he calls it gospel wakefulness. And mm-hmm. Susan and I, um, since 95, were involved in, in youth ministry and in a church I pastored in a different context. So I was actually a youth pastor, student pastor, and then an associate for about 15 years. And uh, I was in a very um, theologically liberal context, so um, yeah, quite a bit different than than uh, than today with a real uh, emphasis on the beauty and the centrality of, of Christ being, you know, uh, the point of the scriptures, the subject of every sermon, these kinds of things we talk about that, that wasn't in my frame of reference prior to, um, 2011. I was on, I was on the path of like, Hey, you know, we're thankful for Jesus and his grace that saved us. And now that you're in, um, you know, pick up a broom, let's get busy. Let's change the world. Let's be amazing, bigger, better, faster, mm-hmm. stronger Christianity. I mean, I just loved it. I was, mm-hmm. I loved it. I was basically like a motivational speaker that threw some scriptures in kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. But in 2011, we just got our worlds rocked by the gospel, just a whole barrage of um, gospel-centered teachers that God had lovingly drawn across our path. It started with a couple of books. One was the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones that a friend gave us. Uh, and my wife was reading that at night with our kids and was she just weeping like, wow, Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation in a way we'd never seen or thought about. And another book was uh, by Tim Keller. Others were by Michael Horton, uh, Tully and Chavijan, just a whole bunch of guys who were putting Jesus front and center. And the more we read their work, the more we were convicted that we were not on the Christ alone script. So that was 2011. By 2012, um, I'd enrolled at Knox Theological Seminary down there in in Fort Lauderdale uh, to write my master's of theology. I'm in my fourth year now. And then during uh, the year of 2014 or 2013, 2014, I looked for a a network with which to plant a gospel-centered church and uh, ended up joining the Grace Network up here in Canada, which is an affiliate of Redeemer City to City out of uh, Tim Keller's New York. And um, so I I was just looking for covering. I felt very much like a vagabond because I had kind of resigned from the other context as just such a theological chasm. I couldn't, I couldn't consolidate it and I needed to move on. So I felt like a vagabond for a while and, um, but they brought, they took us in the uh, Grace Network. We came under care of the PCA in uh, 2014 and got our training. So then by Easter Sunday of 2015, a year later, um, I'd worked with a launch team. So I had a group of about 20 folks who had come from a few different contexts. A lot of them had come out of the, uh, the same uh, liberal context that I had come out of. And we'd spent a year basically kind of catechizing them. Um, They wanted to plant a church. They were excited about it. Um, They had been following a lot of the the blogging that I had been doing and the gospel awakening that I had had really begun to minister to them. They started questioning some things and decided to come. And and so a bunch of folks had kind of left their uh, churches kind of as graciously as they could to uh, say, you know, we would like to uh, uh, plant a church. And um, so I spent a good year taking them through – you know, some of the catechism stuff to just, just give them a, a, an opportunity for a lot of question and answer after I taught on Sunday mornings and that to make sure that before we started, uh, we were all on the same Christ alone, uh, justification by faith song sheet. So, 
sure. under the under the direction of my elders um kind of got that kind of got that group ready it took a year to do that and then we launched 2015 and here we are a year later and we've got uh, a bunch of really committed and loving families that are have come together to care for one another and um you know, we've got some uh, baptism this fall of a young guy who's come to faith in Christ, really excited about. There's about 100, I'd say, that are in the church who uh, have come, kind of raised their hand from different surrounding churches and said, you know, let's help let's help these young guys plant and uh, from more established churches. And they've been really gracious to send them. Hmm. It's been a godsend. So, that, so there you have it. So I guess the joys and the crap I was referring to, I mean, the joys are... <laughs> You know, you're baptizing uh, kids. You are seeing people come to faith in Christ. Just skeptics are showing up at church. We've got people who come out to Redeemer who are from all different walks of life. Folks with uh, come out of uh, the, the world of uh, same-sex attraction and just flat-out, you know, skeptical or atheist, and they'll come out and to hear the gospel and have some great conversations, just kind of loving those folks and connecting with them. So those are some of the joys. You know, you see people who a year ago didn't even know each other, but now they're coming along and rallying when folks get sick. And the, the crap part is, you know, you have just the suffering of life. You have folks that are battling cancer. You've, you, you know, I've never, you're, you're visiting people in the hospital. You've got young people battling for their lives, just the life and death stuff of the suffering of the world. And when you plant a church, it's just a microcosm of human suffering. I mean, everybody in their own way is suffering. And uh, mm-hmm. so as a pastor, you kind of wade into that and, you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. Exactly. That's a great story. I, I think you just shared one of those um, in one of your recent blog posts about that gospel awakening. And I really appreciate that mm-hmm. story, by the way. But if you could, um, and maybe you can't, but if you could, what's what was sort of like, maybe it wasn't, but what was sort of like the switch that said, wow, this is this is different than what I've been teaching or this is different than what I've been, been reading my whole life. Sure. Like what was the switch if there was one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was, a, it was like a switch that I kept resisting because it was just such an affront to my ego. I mean, yeah, I think the best way to describe it would be in my prior context, I was, I was putting the Christian at the center of every text. Mm. So rather than looking at the Bible and, and saying, this is a book that's about God. This is a book that's about his grace. This is a book that's about his son. Um, this is a book about Christ for sinners. And how do I read this and see the beauty of God's grace for me? Um, rather than that, it was kind of like, this is a book that um, I'm supposed to teach the church how to be better versions of themselves. If if people can, if they can just do it right, get it right, live life right, get marriage right, get parenting right, uh, get sex right, get get uh, social conscious, right. You know, um, you know, then, then we're really going to, you know, we're really going to make it. So my whole approach to the scriptures just wasn't really faithful to the text. And when I started seeing, you know, the way that these other Christ centered, if I was to say redemptive preaching, because nobody would, nobody wants to confess they don't preach Christ. Everybody's like, yeah, I preach Christ. I mean, I said that too. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to, I didn't want to look in the mirror and say, I'm a pastor that doesn't preach Jesus, but but the fact of the matter was that my preaching wasn't redemptive because I wasn't, I wasn't pulling the church out of themselves to show them their sin and show them their savior. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of saying, you know, I'm not going to preach the gospel. I'm going to assume it. I'm not going to show you Jesus. I'm going to assume him. I'm not going to preach grace in Christ. We're just going to pat grace on the head and we're going to get to application. That's, 
that's what I was doing. And I just, you know, Susan lovingly was trying to point, point me to the fact when she had the gospel wakefulness moment, you know, a year before I did. And she was like, Hey, Paul, you know, read this, check this out. And I just fought it because um, I didn't want to confess that uh, Christ wasn't essential in my, in my way of preaching the scripture. So the switch that flipped it was, it was just over time, the spirit doing convicting work and, Mm -hmm. and just getting to a point where I was like, you know what, not only, not only am I not preaching Christ, but I don't know how to. And in a, in a, I was in a, uh, like I mentioned, a, a liberal context where because I have a communication gift and because you just put a microphone in my hand and I'm very comfortable on stage and I can be very demonstrative and ill, you know, animated. And what, mm-hmm. So I was just riding this kind of natural gifting, but I was a theological zero. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was recognizing that not only am I not preaching Christ, but I don't, the, I don't really know how to deep dive into the the scriptures to just show how beautiful grace is. Mm. So it was that some point in 2011 um, that I was like, Oh my gosh, God, forgive me. <laughs> I got to get myself. You know, Susan was like, you got to go to seminary, bro. And I was like, oh, <laughs> work. But, uh, uh, praise Jesus. You know, we did it. Exactly. Uh, you know. yeah, that's interesting. Cause I've, I come from sort of a fundamental background and that's sort of, the same things as a lot of the times we would go to an Old Testament passage and here's five principles on how to raise your kids or here's six principles on how to make your life better and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. And a lot of times, unfortunately so, that's how we preach and that's how a lot of sermons will run is that it's like there's our three points and just move on with our day. It's not focused on instead of what does this mean to me, it's what what should we should be asking is what does this show us about Christ and that's even my own, I've even made that own switch myself into sort of asking those questions every time I open the Bible is not yeah. what does this mean to me, but how does this show me Jesus and how does this show me what he's done for me? And it, and if we can get to that p- place of just showcasing the beauty of Christ and grace mm-hmm. in him, then of course application flows because it's dripping from rede- with redemption. That's right? right. Application that's dripping with redemption is beautiful. That's how Paul wrote his epistles. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's the it's the North American application that's devoid of redemption. That's yep. toxic. It's yep. the application that's all about earning. That's toxic. It's the mm-hmm. it's the application that dwarfs redemption. That's toxic. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't. You know, it's very human. And I think I did it initially too, where it's like, okay, um, wow, the grace of Jesus is beautiful. You know, application is you know, let's throw that away. Whereas it's like, no, it's it actually the the gospel transforms how you understand what application is that it's something right. that the spirit wrought it's something that the spirit does and and uh, it just transforms your whole way of approaching the text um yeah. because you're not just like yeah but yeah but it's jesus mention gospel throw the word grace in there because that's trending <laughs> okay now that we got that down and i've mentioned jesus you know the gospel and you know we're gospel centered um now i'm going to get into what i really wanted to talk about in the first point place which was this topical you know sermon to get the church to do a b and c you know exactly or giving you more money (laughs) yeah or whatever exactly so (laughs) it was just like i just recognized i don't have the wealth um of 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 doctrinal knowledge and depth to to really do that week in and week out for the next 30 years and that was where i was like i just got to go to seminary otherwise i'm going to be you know 
downloading uh, Brad's podcasts, stealing <laughs> your sermons, and you know, throwing my throwing my own my own illustrations in there, and hoping nobody re- realizes this is you know Keller and Rosenblatt that I've yeah. that I've ripped off, and I'm preaching Dan Praises and Mass, Matt Popovich stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's where it just got me that humbling place of we got to go to ground zero. That's awesome, and I know. Well, speaking of you know what you're preaching and stuff like that. I know that you just finished a series on Matthew, I believe. And I think it was called Christ alone. I yeah. think, and yeah. I think you're starting one on Ephesians right now, but mm-hmm. you know, sort of what, what was one of the things that stuck out to you most as you walked through Matthew and you walked through Jesus's ministry and life and death and resurrection. Well, I did that because in the first year of the church, I was like, I got this brand new baby church and you know, what they tell you when you're going to your church planters kind of training assessment. I was actually down in Atlanta doing that with the PCA. And they're like, you know, think about, think long and hard about what you're going to preach that first year. Cause you're set in the gospel theology. Mm. So I did uh kind of a 12 week gospel flyover, kind of the grand narrative of scripture of grace and Christ. And then I took 40 weeks to go through Matthew. And I did that on purpose because I wanted the church you know, in the theological DNA to know we're never getting off the Christ alone script. When Jesus said on the Emmaus road, you know, this whole thing is about me guys. He wasn't kidding. So if that's true, how is it true? So I think the thing that struck me the most going through the, um, those 40 weeks, uh, through Matthew's gospel would probably just be how, um, jaw dropping, probably how jaw dropping grace is, but also how, how how powerful uh how powerful um the grace that saved us is to reform us hmm. so i think that struck me the most was not only are we blown away by jesus and what he said and how uh you know the, the things that you and all the other guys you know you know harp on in a good way that he came and he fulfilled the law for us and the implications of all of that and that substitutionary atonement so there was the just the, there was the grace that justified us that went deeper for me that blew my mind, but also just recognizing that same grace that justified us that is the power of the gospel that sanctifies us that this Jesus that we're so blown away by um, he's not just the entrance into Christian faith he's the power by which we're living it out and just that right. beautiful working of the spirit of his spirit today yeah it was just awesome for me to just deep dive through that. That's awesome. I got I got more out of it than the church did for sure. <laughs> I find that often too when you're studying for a yeah. sermon and you put all this work into it. You, you, sometimes you end up learning more than <laughs> what your hearers do. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You, I mean, definitely. Because when I look out there, you know, you study. I don't know how long it takes. You know, for me, it's probably. I think I probably spend um, twelve or. I don't know. It depends on the, the text, but 12 to 16 hours, let's say for me to write a sermon. And maybe one day when I'm smarter, it won't take me so long, but uh, so let's say 12 to 16 hours for me to study and write a sermon. I get out there and I'm looking at, you know, a 12 year old and a 40 year old and a 60 year old and six and a 17 year old and a 22 year old. And so, you know, you just can't turn Sunday morning into seminary. You know? <laughs> so you end up, you end up getting so much more than you're like, how am I going to deliver this? So that that six, that 16 year old and the 60 year old both leave church and go, wow, Jesus was beautiful. You know, easy to do. I'm still trying to figure that out. (laughs) Me too, brother. (laughs) Um, 
Now, also, too, if I can ask, explain sort of your mindset going into Ephesians and maybe even why you chose Ephesians next after Matthew. Sure. I did that. Um, my reasoning for that was let we, we take a year to go through Matthew and just blow out the beauty of, of um, Christ and who he was and what he did and what he said. And then Ephesians is a book about, um, I mean, scholars describe it different ways, but they kind of say the same thing. I mean, it's spiritual growth, it's Christian maturity, it's growing up in Christ, um, you know, this kind of beautiful um, the life of the believer, right? Mm -hmm. And Ephesians is a book that you could almost, you know, divide it in half in the sense that the first three chapters are all divine action. You have no participation uh, whatsoever. It is just God's jaw-dropping grace coming at you. And then chapter four through six is this human response that's propelled by divine action. Mm -hmm. So that was why I did it next with the church. It's probably take me 11 or 12 weeks to just kind of from the life of Christ go to like, okay, well, if we were, you know, for what does spiritual maturity really even mean? And what does that look like? And Paul says all these kind of these beautiful things that, and there's lots of beautiful, uh, beautiful, um, you know, application for believers as to the lives that we live. Um, yet it's undergirded and propelled by the same grace that saved you. You're saved by grace. You're sanctified by grace. And, um, it's all it's all of God and it's all by spirit. So it's not that we're, you know, these these uh, passive um, uh, observers in God's work in our life, but we're also not driving the work in our life. So it's trying to over the next 12 weeks show the church you're in this beautiful dance of, um, you know, I, I said it to the church this way, you know, obedience to Christ and growing up and spiritual maturity, all these things. It's a it's a dance. It's a celebration dance. It's it's a dance you do because you're a dancer because you've been saved by grace and he made you a dancer and there's a dance we do it's it's this beautiful responsive dance of obedience but if you screw up the law and the gospel then you end up thinking obedience is like it's not a dance of celebration it's a dance audition <laughs> and you're like it's so you think you can dance every Sunday and it's so you think you can dance Christian life <laughs> and um, instead of obedience being something that you just over more and more over the course of your lifetime want to do because the spirit is sanctifying you um, obedience becomes this kind of toxic chore of earning and you know, all that other stuff that we kind of talk about so I try to get them to see that if you if we if we don't understand the beauty of the grace that saved us then we're always going to see um, instead of a dance of celebration, it's like um, Jared Wilson said it this way in his book, Gospel Wakefulness. It's like uh, an old Western where the, uh, the, you know, the, the guy comes into town with the six shooters and he's dance varmint, you know, and he's firing <laughs> these six shooters at your feet. I mean, you're dancing all right, uh, but it's a dance of compliance. There's no rhythm, you know, <laughs> where that's not the dance of obedience for the believer. It's there. It's this beautiful rhythm because this is, we're actually living according to who we, who we are. Mm. So that was why I did the series next for the church uh, to hopefully give them some good categories to understand the beauty of uh, what it actually means to, you know, live to the obedience of Christ. Exactly. And I love yeah. that imagery too, that you use just the idea of, you know, dancing for celebration and also on the opposite side, dancing out of, you know, coercion or even dancing just to try to, get a reward of some sort. And I just think that's yeah. really palpable to people that are trying to understand how do grace and sanctification work and mesh and go together. Yeah. I mean, I know personally in my own life, I spent a lot of time thinking about obedience, either driven by fear 
of punishment or pining for reward. And both mm-hmm. of them are toxic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm afraid of the big ogre in the sky, something's <laughs> messed up with my view of the Christian God and his grace. But if I'm also, the reason I'm obeying is because I want God to bless me. Um, then all of my serving is self-serving. There's just nothing loving about that. So yeah. there are two ditches of the same ugly, you know, street. And now a quick break for a word from my partners in ministry, Dead Men. Hey everyone, have you checked out Dead Men at www.deadmenstuff.com yet? If not, what are you waiting for? Dead Men exists to equip disciples and grow leaders. We do this through Christ-centered articles, devotions, videos, a podcast, and free resources like books. Dead Men presents the gospel in a straightforward and intentional way. Check us out today at www.deadmanstuff.com. Now, back to Paul Dunk. <laughs> now, um, if I can ask you, this is more of a practical question. Uh, some of our guys that are listening and writing and stuff like that, they're mm-hmm. also our pastors or they're youth pastors, student ministers. What is sort of... What does your sermon preparation look like? I know that's different for everyone, and some people do a lot. I know you said you study for like 12 to 16 hours, but what yeah. What does that kind of look like on a given week? Sure. Um, yeah, it does take me that long because uh, I probably, I mean, the first eight hours of that, um, so I do, I do read the text and I go back to the original language as much as I can. I have zero knowledge of Hebrew presently. <laughs> Um, I'm halfway through my Greek studies, uh, mm-hmm. in seminary. Uh, so I do as much of that as I can. And then, you know, you do, um, I think just some good due diligence stuff. So you'll, you will find some commentaries written by, uh, historians. So you've got a historical cultural perspective. Um, you'll go to textual scholars and you'll look at the language stuff. Cause there might be some beautiful nuggets in there that'll serve people. I mean, at the end of the day, I always joke with my church. It's like, you know, Greek, in Hebrew, it's kind of like your underwear. You should always have it on you, but you don't have to go showing it off to everybody. <laughs> so I have to spend a lot of time in the language to make sure that what I'm saying, I'm not the first guy in history that said it. Um, and then, um, so then there's history and then you've got, uh, I mean, any, most guys use Logos these days. That's what I use too, because you, you want to, you want to deep dive into what a lot of the, um, uh, these theologians who are experts in those fields have to say, because, um, Sometimes there's conflicting views and you have to wrestle with that. But for the most part, most of the guys agree on the, on the, on the, on the, uh, the life and death kind of issues. So I spend a lot of time in there, but actually what takes just as much time. So what ends up happening is uh, I end up having pages and pages of raw thoughts that are connected to the text in, in order. Um, but then what I do after that is nobody wants to hear that. You know, like you, you, the only people that want to hear that are are theologians. And if I was if I was teaching a Wednesday night theology course, people would want to hear that. But nobody on a Sunday morning would want to hear what I have after the first eight hours because it's just you know doctrinally solid. But it's it would be like eating a steak with nothing to drink. So the next half hour you spend crafting. Uh, one of my theological mentors, his name's Dan McDonald. He's pastoring a church here in Toronto. He always says to me, Paul, people aren't changed by sermons as much as they are changed by sentences. <laughs> and uh, what he means by that is obvious, right? You whittle that down basically so that mm-hmm. you're trying to craft each sentence. And when you read, you know, I have a book called uh, In the Company of Great Preachers and you read um, Chrysotome or Spurgeon or Luther or Calvin, these guys, and they just, the way they crafted each sentence is mind boggling. And, um, 
that's why we quote them and steal their stuff and change a couple <laughs> words and and tweet it out, you know, so yeah, people, that's why we do that because they're, they're geniuses. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time trying to craft things down, thinking about the people who are sitting in my church in front of me. Um, that 15 year old kid, you know, single people, single parents, and it just, so it takes a lot of time. And then uh, after I, after I have something that I think, um, sir is faithful to the text, but is also going to make Jesus beautiful and exciting in a, in a, in a fresh way. Then I go to the illustrations, you know, are there stories and analogies and, you know, uh, Brian Chappelle, he's the uh, senior editor for the gospel transformation Bible. He's my homiletics prophet Knox. Brian would say to us that, um, you know, your doctrine, that's like the steel beams and everything in the sermon, but the illustrations are like the windows and you got to shed some light on there. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, Again, if I was to borrow from Jared Wilson, because I think he's a genius at this, uh, Jared Wilson would say that, um, and I I took this advice into my sermon prep, he would say that we're always at risk of uh, preaching the gospel in predictable ways, and then the listener listener tunes out. And, you know, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it, I think, as preachers. My kids will say to me, Dad, you keep using that one phrase, you know, you got to say it another way, (laughs) which is actually really annoying, but also fantastic feedback. Yeah. Because otherwise you kind of get your handful of, uh, you know, gospel zingers and you go with those and people tune it out. And so what we want to do is do justice to the jaw dropping announcement of grace, that it's life and death stuff and that Jesus is life and death stuff. He's the death proof, you know, savior of the world. So how can we in unique ways say the same thing every week? And obviously the text dictates that, but how do we show the glory of Christ that way? And I guess final thought, and I'll turn it back to you because i'm such a blabbermouth but final Final thought on final thought on this would be charles hodge uh you know theologian um uh actually i'm not sure uh, what year this guy was kind of in his prime he's an elderly gentleman if he's still alive now for sure but charles hodge said um that the gospel is so simple a child can understand it but it's so endlessly rich that the widest theologians will never exhaust its depths Mm -hmm. so i think that's good for us as preachers to realize that it is as easy. It is easy enough that a kid can understand it. But if it's true that it's so endlessly rich that I can't exhaust its depths, then I have to, I have to do my due diligence here, um, so that Sunday in and Sunday out, the church isn't finishing my sentences. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's pretty. I think that serves people. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and as ministers, that's our job. Yeah. We're there to serve people. You know, so I like that too because uh, I think it was Justin Buzzard. He just posted something on his blog who was talking about how Christians should be the greatest explorers. And I think that's so true, especially as pastors is that we should continuously be diving and exploring just, just as you said, the wealth and exhaustive riches of what the gospel can hold. That's, mm-hmm. I, I just love that idea and that analogy, just because we're always diving, we're always diving deeper and finding new caverns of grace that can open up and abound to us. Yeah. Um, so true. Um, Another thought I just, or a question I was going to ask you is, you know, you mentioned earlier, you were going back to Knox Theological, you're getting a master's and just kind of, um, you know, I've been pondering the same sort of movements in my own life, going back to the seminary. And I think a couple of my listeners are doing the same, but I would ask you kind of, um, what has it been like, you know, going back to school after being out of school for so long? (laughs) Oh my goodness. 
<laughs> okay, here's my okay. All of you who are uh, who are not pastoring yet, and you're thinking about going and writing your masters of theology, don't do it at the same time. <laughs> do not do it. I don't recommend it. I, it's 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 uh, it's incredibly difficult. So here's a couple of thoughts that I you when you sent me this question, I I um. I thought this through. How can I serve people by answering this? The thing with writing your master's is obviously it's very mentally demanding. So uh, practically speaking, um, I've got some corporate experience. And so I'm a good, I'm a good manager of my time and um, not naturally, naturally I'm not, it's a learned skill. But if, if, if you're going to uh, be involved, be in ministry and, and write a master's, then you got to be super diligent with uh, your time management, uh, just practically speaking. So what I did was the first two years of seminary, um, I actually did it all in the evening so that my kids didn't suffer. So it was like, have dinner with the family, hang out with the kids till maybe eight or nine. And then I cracked the laptop open and I just went until 12 or one in the morning, like every night for two years. And that was, uh, the only reason I could do it is I'm a night hawk. So if, if you're not a night hawk, then what I just said is a nightmare, but that was how I was able, at least for the first two years until, uh, until, um, uh, I was able to, the church was able to bring on uh, full, full time, um, uh, I mean, we didn't have a church when I started, I was preparing for the plant, but what I, I just timed it out so that, uh, by the time the church started, I had done, um, basically everything except the languages. So sure. when the church launched, um, I didn't think anybody was going to care so much that I'm a Greek and Hebrew, but that, <laughs> the other stuff was, the other stuff was pretty code red. So I made sure I had all that. Um, the other thing I'd say is that you have to know, um, as a pastor, when your high energy and your low energy times are uh, each week and also day by day. So you, what you'll do is you'll craft your schedule so that when you're at your sharpest, that's when you're doing the brain work. Mm-hmm. And then when you're, you, you know, so if you're a morning person, afternoon person, um, so that you start doing other things, you know, email, web, you know, whatever else, reading, studying, um, at lower times when you're not, you know, writing papers and, or having to listen to lectures and uh, this kind of thing. Uh, so that, that was um, nobody's at peak performance for 10 hours a day. So you have to understand that and, and do it. The other, the other challenge that I had obviously doing seminary and once the church started was, you know, the church is your priority. The people are your priority. So a pastor who's too busy for the people, um, is either lazy or a bad time manager or missed his call or burnt out because you go into pastoring to serve people, right? You can't, uh, you know, we're called to care for Christ's church. We're not, you know, religious entrepreneurs with business plans. We don't get to hide behind a door that says, you know, visionary leader. And, uh, and uh, I mean, obviously as, as, uh, as the church grows, I'm not going to do um, all of the pastoral care like I do today being the only uh, pastor on staff, but I will always do it. It's you're called to do it. You can't, uh, I'll, I'll have elders and maybe some other staff, but you've got to always do it. So it was the nature of my, it was the nature of my personal reformation that demanded me do the seminary um, midstream because God had arrested my heart when we were on a trajectory to plant a church back in, uh, you know, 2010, 2011. So 
it was just the nature of my reformation that required it, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it. I would say if you're not pastoring and you're thinking about writing your master's, then write your master's. Um, because what you don't want to end up with is, Hey, sorry, uh, John, I can't have coffee with you. I know your marriage is on the rocks, but I got a paper due, you know, this weekend. So you don't want to be in that situation. Yeah, definitely. Now I, I was, when I finished undergrad, I was sort of somewhat kindly pressured into going in, going into seminary. And I kindly and gently said, no, I didn't want to go to seminary right out of undergrad. And, and I think a lot of the guys are sometimes, you know, pressured into doing that and whatever, but I would ask you, do you think it's beneficial to sort of wait and sort of, because from my Mm -hmm. perspective, it sort of was, I know it was for me and it was Mm -hmm. definitely beneficial to kind of get out, get into the real world type of stuff. Do you think that Mm -hmm. has a role in a, in a good benefit and to guys who are thinking Mm -hmm. about seminary? Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely some, some benefits. All of the, all of the negatives are what I just, uh, are kind of what I just shared, right? If you're, if you're pastoring and doing seminary at the same time, it's, it has to do with the negatives have to do with your church can't suffer because you're studying and you don't want your family to suffer because you're studying. So you just have to be, if you're not a high capacity, high energy person, you probably don't want to do that or it's going to burn you out. But there, but the advantages, like you're saying, I mean, I'm 41. So I've done enough um, of uh, some uh, some corporate work, some other I've been been around and done some pastoring, and they don't have a class in seminary called, you know, my kid took too many pills and it's two in the morning and I need you to come to the hospital. There's no there's no class for that. So there's obviously some benefits to getting out and getting some ministry experience, uh, specifically because. Um, you also learn a little, you learn a lot about yourself, about how you learn. So when you're writing, when you're going to write a master's, you have to figure out um, what's your learning style and um, how do you ingest this information? How do you retain this information so that, you know, when you're a little older, like, uh, you know, being an old, uh, an old fart like me at 80, at, at, uh, at 41, <laughs> what you learn is I need to know this. I can't just, I can't just, uh, you know, retain some facts, regurgitate them on a test or in a paper and move on with my life. This is life and death stuff that's going to affect my church. So I think you are probably a little less likely to just try and breeze through a course later in life than, than you would when you're younger and you're just kind of like, yeah, let's just, you know, get this out of the way and get the marks and move on. So <laughs> sure. you know, there's probably some, uh, there's probably some advantages to that. I I, I don't want to communicate. I mean, I have a nasty habit of communicating my opinions like they're facts. So <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want the listeners to think that uh, what I'm saying about, you know, the order in which you do seminary ministry is the right way to do it. Uh, I'm just speaking from my own, uh, my personal experience and my, and my scars, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got scars from doing it my way. You don't, you can't do it my way and not come out and with some leadership scars <laughs> and uh, some other, some family scars and some marriage scars and some, Hey dad, where are you scars? So I'm speaking out of that. I'm probably projecting a little bit, I think. <laughs> no, that's good. I appreciate you sharing. Um, I do have to confess, though, that I wasn't too familiar with you or your writing until I ran across you, I think, on Liberate one time, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I really, if I can use this phrase, I sort of fell in love with your writing when you came to Christ Hold Fast. I just really oh, thank like you. I connected with you and all the stuff you were writing and posting and writing about. And I just... Um, and I'll, not just there, but on KW and stuff like that. And sort of tell me though, what have you sort of 
learned through the years as you've been writing and sort of like what has what have you seen change the most in, in how you write i guess i would say because a lot of the guys are budding writers aspiring writers and mm-hmm. it's good to learn from fellow writers <laughs> uh sure i mean i'm i'm uh i'm flattered that's probably the wrong word uh <laughs> no that's maybe it's a great word uh but um I'm not, I don't know how qualified I am really. So I, uh, to speak about this, I don't know that I'm a, a great, I'm encouraged by what you're saying. I don't know that I'm a great writer. I'll, here's, I'll just share what I've kind of learning. Um, I think that the more you write, uh, the better that serves you because connected to our earlier conversation, it helps expand your vocabulary, your illustration ability, your insights, uh, your angles so that you're not predictable in your way of communicating the jaw dropping grace of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more that we're writing again, we're not changing the message. We're not trying to dress up Jesus with guitar solos because if we don't, he's boring, <laughs> but rather the more we're able to figure out how we can use modern day parables, analogies, uh, life events, culture, art, business politics to just kind of do justice to the announcement of the gospel. I think it's helpful for people. And so as a, as a preacher writing those blogs, I try and keep them around. I mean, everybody has, this isn't the right strategy. There's a thousand strategies. I try and keep mine around 500 um, to a thousand words at a maximum. And that's only for a, that's only a kind of a personal discipline because if I can say something in short order, um, then it's easy to, it's easier to expound, but to just get down like a laser, I think it serves people to say, Oh, I read that blog. And I remember this thing that served me when I'm preaching, I do this thing called, uh, the sermon in a sentence. And so every sermon before I get into it, I'll read the text and I'll say, now here's the sermon in a sentence. And I'll just say a sentence and <laughs> I'm basically saying like, if you just got that sentence, I'm about to expound that whole sentence. (laughs) And the reason I do that, I mean, for those who are familiar with homiletics, you call that the proposition of your sermon, right? So Mm -hmm. um, you're you're going to look at the text. What does the text mean? And where am I going with this? And I'm asking the text questions and you blow it all out and you end up with kind of a, the elevator speech on your sermon. So I think what, what serves trying to, as a, as a blogger, as a writer, the more concise you can be, it forces you into laser clarity. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm very good at that yet. I think I'm getting better at it. Um, but uh, just the laser clarity. Mm, yeah. I'm not good at that either. <laughs> I tend to meander yeah. and wander and let all it's, you know, you sit down at a keyboard and sometimes it's nothing. And then other times it's just big vomit of everything that you think you should say. And, when it mm-hmm. should be a little bit more, as you said, laser focused. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think one of the problems that we have as preachers is we forget people are coming back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're coming back next Sunday. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> chill out, bro. And, and I think blogging is the same way. Yeah. You know, it's like, here's my, here's my treatise, you know, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> dude, I, my thumb is getting tired of scrolling. I think I'm out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a very short attention span, like a, like the life expectancy of a fruit fly. So I'm probably not <laughs> a good gauge of how long your blogs should be. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've been in those situations where you keep reading, you're like word 4,000. 
It's a little yeah. bit long, man. Yeah, <laughs> I did a doozy last week. I mean, usually I do the 500, 1,000 word ones, but I did one uh, coming out of my prior uh, context where, you know, uh, you know, regretfully and, and it's, it saddens me and it burdens me to confess that I preached a, a prosperity gospel hmm. and all of the doctrinal heresies that go along with that and how that burdens people. And what, what that came out of was sitting in hospitals with people from Redeemer who are battling the life and death stuff. And they're still haunted by the idea that should I be doing something more to get God's attention and mm. the suffering will end? Is there something I'm missing where God's just got my healing right there in his hand? And if I can just, you know, cross over the spiritual tipping point, I'm going to be healed or this thing's going to, and my blood just was boiling as I just recognized how much, how hurtful that and damaging that teaching was. And I said, I got to write this out um, to serve my church and those who, are haunted by this teaching. And, and that blog ended up being a doozy. I mean, that was like a, that was like 3,500 words. That was <laughs> ridiculous, but I, I don't think you, uh, but it, it got uh, a lot of, a lot of reads and a lot of shares. And I, and, and I got a ton of messages from people that it administered to, um, it, but you know, that was a one-off. I don't, I don't think when people log, you know, I don't think, I don't think when people go to, Hey man, I'm going to read Brad's blog. You know, they're expecting 4,000 words. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) No. Um, I think I would say perhaps one of my favorite posts by you is when you titled the terrible search in which you take a Jim Carrey quote and you talk about how he was on this terrible search for his fourth Oscar. And that whole idea of the fact that many of the times mankind is on their own terrible search and i just think one if you can talk about that but two just i think that's such a powerful message especially as it attains to pertains to young men just Mm -hmm. because i think Mm -hmm. that that's such a crucial time a lot of times i think that's when they're that's almost like the peak terrible search time in in guys lives is you know that sort of young men stage if you if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so maybe Mm -hmm. just talk about that i just love that post by the way Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, when I watched uh, Jim Carrey do his uh, Golden Globe speech, which is on, if I guess if you go to, I guess if you go to the website, uh, kwredeemer.com and find the terrible search, uh, I put the video on there. And mm-hmm. he, Jim is just like, it was brilliant. I mean, it was such an anthropological commentary on just <laughs> that unending quest of the human heart, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, he was so funny, but I, as you're laughing, you're like, oh my gosh, it's true. You know, we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're never enough until we get this next thing and then we'll be happy. Uh, I guess what I'd say to the young guys, I mean, all guys, but I mean, to the young guys, um, is I, and our hearts, you know, just our hearts are restless and until our hearts find their rest in God, in Christ, in his grace, then we've just got this switch labeled worship that's been flicked to on since the garden. And uh, those restless hearts chase after all kinds of good things. And chronically we make them ultimate things. And then those ultimate things become these toxic, exhaustive things because they can't satisfy our soul. It doesn't matter if it's girls. It doesn't matter if it's the, career it doesn't matter if it's you're being identified uh defined by your academia 
your gym, how many Twitter followers you have, how dateable you are. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's the, the next Golden Globe. That's was the whole point of the blog was it's like his the next Golden Globe, you know. And as I'm listening to Jim and I'm laughing at, him, I'm realizing I struggle from the same for the same thing as as a preacher. Um, my wife is lovingly busting me all the time. I'll be down on a, on the laptop and she's like, you know, you're checking to see how many people read the blog or downloaded the sermon, aren't you? She's like, you're garnering your identity from this, (laughs) from this ministry. And she's, she's so right. And she knows me so well. And she just calls out my sin and I'm like, Oh God, help me. The, the, uh, so for the young guys who are listening to this, it's not like the preachers in the pulpit are exempt from, uh, wanting to define themselves by something else other than the cross. Our problem, if I was to be really transparent, is that as preachers, we garner our identity, uh, a lot of it from the ministry and the people that are sitting in the chairs in front of us. We don't want to do that. We don't always do it, but it's like that inner struggle all the time that it's like, oh God, help me. Um, to preach your gospel and actually rest in the gospel I'm preaching, not preach your gospel and then garner my identity from how good of a preacher of the gospel I actually am, you know, or will Brad ask me back for another interview or what if I bomb? <laughs> you know? yeah. And so it's that, it's that terrible search that we, that we end up in. And, and uh, the, the beautiful, the beautiful sanctifying work of the spirit is that more and more over the course of our life for for all of us and the young guys who it's like, let my life be defined by a cross and not by anything else is that he actually begins to replace the spirit. The sanctifying work is that he begins to replace our loves. It's the, it's the power of that expulsive love. So he expels that chronic need we have to make this thing ultimate and define us. And he replaces it with a love for Christ. And he replaced so that our hearts are at rest and we can enjoy good things like work and, you know, all relationships and marriage and all these things. We can enjoy them without, without making them ultimate, which the thing that sucks about that, and we all do it, is that you end up creating an idol that disappoints you. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more depressing than being disappointed by your idol. Yeah, it's true. And that's where that, that's where that restlessness, that, that uh, terrible search leads us. Mm. And it reminded me of that blaze Pascal quote, which I'm probably going to botch it, but it has to do with the idea that the eternal soul can only be filled by something that is itself eternal, which means by God. And so this whole terrible search is going to be terrible until you realize that you're trying to find God in this all these other terrible avenues that you're that you're going down and mm-hmm. you're looking for. So it was a great reminder. I appreciate it. That's oh, so good. And and then we don't vilify and you know and in that when your heart is at rest in God, you're not vilifying uh, good things and being human. It's it actually makes you fully human mm-hmm. because now you're actually now you're actually free in Christ to enjoy good things without making them ultimate things. Yep, that's right. And you're actually free in Christ if you don't have any good things in your life. Like, cause we had to flip it and go on the other side. Cause there's guys that are listening to this and going, that's really great. But you know, my life is in the crapper <laughs> and I got nothing good going on, but it's the freedom of Christ that keeps us from, from that downward spiral of depression, because there's these good things that are evading us because you realize those good things aren't ultimate things. They're not, eternal things and and my and even the suffering that i'm in now uh is not 
an eternal thing. But that's too heady and too intellectual. You can't intellectualize into yourself into that gospel peace. You need um, – it's only the grace of Christ that brings rest, like you're saying, that eternal rest from something that is eternal in our restless hearts. Mm, that's good. Now, I liked how you used – Jim Carrey's kind of quip there. How would you say that, you know, in, you know, the colloquial term, how would, how would pop culture influence your writing, but also in some other ways influence how you approach the gospel in some ways? I mean, because I think it can be very good, like sort of barometer of where, you know, our culture is, where mankind as a whole is their thinking is. And so I think sometimes you can kind of pull stuff out and be like, this is a good application of what the gospel Mm -hmm. is talking about. Yeah. I mean, there's some guys who really inspire me in that area. Um, You know, uh, David and John Zoll, the the mockingbird guys out of New York Mm -hmm. uh, city. Um, They're just brilliant. I mean, we get, uh, you know, we get their stuff, their publication, and uh, they're just brilliant. They just look at a culture, see these these things. So I think that for me, um, wanting to grow in that, wanting to get better at that for sure, because again, I think it serves, I think it serves my church to be able to look out at the world and uh, begin to see um, these, these themes of the law and of grace. I mean, one of the funny things now that you bring this is you bring this up. You remember a couple of years ago when, um, when lame is, uh, mm-hmm. came yeah. out again, again on Broadway in the film and all. So <laughs> I had a coffee with a friend of mine and this was back, I think in like 2011 when I had my my gospel awakening <laughs> and I had just seen Les Mis and he had seen Les Mis and I was blown away by it. I was absolutely the, the law and the gospel through Les Mis. I was just losing my mind. <laughs> I was just new to it. I was just totally new to this whole, this whole uh, business of, Oh my goodness, Christianity is actually about Jesus. So I was just, it was very new to me. And this guy sits down to me and he says, dude, I didn't, he's like, I didn't, I didn't like it very much. I'm like, really? Why? He's like, um, He's like, he stole a loaf of bread. I mean, (laughs) it's just a loaf of bread. I'm like coming across the table in this coffee shop. I'm like coming across the table. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, that's the law, bro. You know, I'm like losing my. So I think that if we can, I think that if we can look at I mean, I wrote a blog today on Civil War, that Marvel flick coming out. And I I mean, it's, it's like uber predictable for, for, uh, for most folks, I'm going to just drop the Roman seven bombs on, on Paul's inner civil war. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I like to do that. I, 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 I think it, I think it, um, it serves, it serves folks to begin to kind of look at the gospel and look at that application, as you say, um, in, in uh, something that uh, is something that is uh, fresh and alive and real mm-hmm. and um, they, they very much a part of, their lives again getting back to the whole thing about the gospel freeing you to be fully human mm-hmm. so you're 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 looking out at culture and you're by faith because you're in rest in christ you know you're glorifying god by faith and worshiping by faith and you're you're uh, doing your dishes by faith and you're coaching baseball by faith and you're you're um you know as luther said uh, you're doing your good duty because you know you're not putting crosses on shoes if you're a shoemaker you're just making good shoes man exactly you know, you're just making good and so I think that's that's kind of how I see that serving folks. I just I, yeah I'm a I'm a little baby at it. I want want to get a lot better at that. 
you know, as I mentioned in the intro, I really feel like there's a void sometimes in speaking to young men specifically about the gospel, which is why I'm so passionate about this this kind of coalition of guys we got going on here. So if you would allow me to ask this question, I don't mean to be revisionist. What is one thing that you would sort of say that I wish I would have known when I was younger and that now I know now that I wish I could tell other guys, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think what I wish I knew when I was young, a young man in the faith was that fundamentally Christian faith is not about what I'm doing for God. It's about who I'm becoming in God. Mm. I think that in general, um, I mean, we live on a planet where uh, everything is, uh, is driven by our performance and rightly so, right? You can't stop performing at work and, and uh, say, Hey, I'm not going to, you know, performance isn't relevant. You can't stop performing on the football field or the hockey arena or the basketball court. I mean, you can't stop um, giving your wife uh, serious attention and care. You can't stop giving your children your attention. You can't stop if you're a young guy um, applying yourself to your studies. The world turns on performance. Mm. And so there's, there's a very natural importing of that idea regardless of what's coming across the pulpit. It doesn't even have to be explicitly taught, you know, perform for God. And some guys are are poor enough preachers, and I was a poor enough preacher for a long time to explicitly communicate perform for God. But in a lot of contexts, no preacher's saying that. Um, but we implicitly bring that in. And I think it, as a young guy, you already live with this whole, you know, I kind of joke about it. I'm like, when I was 18, I was like, you know, when, you know I was 18, I was like, you know, I'm going to change the world. And then when I was, you know, 28, I was like, okay, I'm going to change the world, you know, for God. And then 38, you're like, okay, it's actually about Jesus, you know, that whole thing. Right. And, um, and lots of us have, have felt that. And so I think for the young guys who, who are listening, I think there's this idea like, um, you know, be a man of God, act like men, be a godly husband, be a godly father. Absolutely. For sure. And uh, it serves your wife and your kids, uh, you know, to work your duff off to love them. But when it comes to how your heavenly father sees you, because again, I'm talking, that's a, that's a horizontal loving your neighbor thing. And, um, and it's right and good for us to give our lives um, for others. And that's a beautiful thing. But horizontal, but vertically speaking, um, none of that's, none of your activities relevant. The love that God has for you um, is absolutely um, uh, static and set in Christ. Mm. And there's nothing that you're doing or not doing that's increasing or decreasing your righteousness in Christ, united to Christ. Right. Right. So I wish I knew when I was younger, what, what being united to Christ meant, because you'd hear the phrase united to Christ or identity in Christ, but it's just kind of like this theological thing that flew around in the stratosphere, but it never really got on the ground. Mm. And when you, when you are, talking about your union with Christ, that's, that's what um, I think helps make sense of these law gospel distinctions that we always talk about, because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not just this arbitrary mechanical, you know, this text says do that. So it's the law. And this text says Jesus did this for you. And that's the God. And then so there we walk away. That's not, 
even if even if you're to kind of pontificate about that theologically, the young guy who's leaving the church walking away is like, you know, what is this kind of kind of what does this kind of mean? And I, so I think that's what one of the things I wish I knew was this whole thing is about who I'm becoming as a result of what Christ is doing in me by his spirit. This is about who I'm becoming in God. I'm becoming freer and freer uh, in God because I'm, I'm learning to hate my sin and love my savior. And this is about who I'm becoming. This isn't about what I'm doing. Um, this isn't about, ROI and, and KPIs and ministry impact. And it's not about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish, I wish that I had that understanding because I just imported uh, that performance that I baptized the performance. And I said, well, this is all, this is all about, this is all for God now, but it was just the same, uh, you know, uh, performance kind of driving my idea of Christian faith. Mm, that is so good. And on that note, I, I think we'll call it. We've gone a little bit over what I expected, but it was a good, good talk. I'm glad you could make the time for me, Paul. And uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate your ministry. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon in the very near future. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks again to Paul for coming on the show today. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and read his blogs on kwredeemer.com, all of which you can find in the show notes. And that's it for today's entry of And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you just heard and would like to hear more, be sure and follow the show on Twitter and subscribe in iTunes. And you can also follow along in, on SoundCloud as well. And if you really like what you heard, do me a favor and leave a short review. That'll go a long way for me to continue making shows like this happen. Thanks again to the folks at CSB for sponsoring the show. And thank you, as always, for listening, subscribing, and commenting. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings. Well,